0: Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Yes, God. God don't never so, welcome to the podcast. This is episode 199. You may have wondered what happened to me for the last couple of weeks. That's because. I was on vacation, and we didn't have any in the can looking forward. So, uh, we weren't canceled or anything like that. We just didn't do it. But this, nonetheless, with the two-week hiatus, uh, I believe it was two weeks, um, we have come to episode 199. So, I want to talk a little bit about um, nature and man's authority to tinker with nature. And and I think we need to talk through uh, these things because there is a re- uh, there's a there's culture-wide reductio ad absurdum going on. And you might know instinctively, I hope you do know instinctively, that a trick is being pulled, but you might have trouble answering the trick or or explaining why we should pay no attention to what's being suggested. So, we are living in a time when people are seriously maintaining that sex change operations are a thing, that it's possible for someone to go through surgery and thereby change their sex. So they had a sex that was assi- assigned to them at birth, and they say gender is, very, is a completely different thing from that. And so you can later on go in and get a sex uh, realignment uh, surgery to get your sex to match up with your gender. So, the statement, a man, uh, this, this man was, or this person, this individual was a, a man born in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. And for many people, that sort of statement makes sense. And of course, Christians object to this and object to it violently and, and regard it rightly as an abomination. All right. So, this is abominable. This is really bad. Don't do it, we say. Now, what happens is people will come back and say, and this is where the argument uh, sometimes gets funky uh, for us, the argument comes back, well, uh, did you get your kid braces? God made your kid a snaggletooth, and there you spent thousands and thousands of dollars, did you not, to do something different with your kid's mouth than what God apparently intended? All right, so you you intervened using artificial means, and with these artificial means, you are straightening teeth out that God made crooked. Moreover, when you got up this morning, you brushed your hair. Uh, you didn't go. You did not go out into the world with the bedhead that God gave you. When your kid breaks his arm, you take uh, him down to the ER, and the the doctor puts the bone back and puts a cast on it. And he. So, what's the difference? They say, what's the difference? between having your teeth straightened and getting uh, a sec- sexual reassignment surgery well here's the here's the difference and and you can't argue this way unless you are prepared to say that we receive information about the will of god from nature nature has to communicate to us the bible does not tell me what my XY chromosome arrangement, XX or XY ought to be. There is no verse that says, Douglas, these are this is your chromosomal chromosomal setup. The Bible doesn't reveal to me whether or not I am a boy or a girl. I have to ascertain that from nature. I have to ascertain that from how God made me. I have to look at the world to find out what I am. So, that means if, if homosexuality is an abomination, and it is, that means that, and, and because the Bible doesn't tell me anywhere that that person over there is a girl and that I am a guy, therefore, it would be permissible and not an abomination to pursue her. Or the Bible never says, that guy's a dude also, and you're a dude, and no no, you can't. The Bible doesn't tell me that. The Bible just tells me that what is prohibited. A man with a man is prohibited. A woman with a woman is prohibited. Who is a man, and who is a woman? I'm expected to find out for myself. I'm expected to find out from nature. So uh, that means I have to read the way it is out there. Now when a when a dentist straightens out someone's teeth, he is doing so because he has studied he's done an intensive study of nature, how our teeth are supposed to look, how they're supposed to go, how they're supposed to function, how they're supposed to fit, what bad things happen if they don't fit that way. So consequently, jumping over to the example of a broken bone, when the doctor at the ER sets the broken bone and puts a cast on it, he's doing this because he knows and understands what nature has said about the proper alignment of a bone. What should a bone ought to be? What what should this uh, look like normally? So, uh, he compares all the uh, forearms that he saw throughout the day, compares them to this forearm, and he says, this forearm is busted. This one won't work. This one is going to cause a lot of damage if we leave it this way, the bone sticking out, and so on. So what he's doing is he is setting the bone with a pattern or a template in mind, and that pattern or template is revealed to him by God in nature. All right. So he set he sets the bone. Now uh, that means uh, that uh, that means lurking behind all of these questions is the great presuppositional question: By what standard? By what standard? Well, what do I what do I mean? Let's say. Uh, suppose someone said, well, is plastic surgery right or wrong? Is plastic surgery right or wrong? Well, the answer is, what are you doing? We have to say, what are you doing? If someone says, uh, well, is it, is it wrong for plastic surgeons to set up shop so that vain and conceited women can come in and change their face every two years? Well, the surgery, the technology, the medical know-how On how to do that is not sinful at all. But if we ask the question, by what standard? What's happening? What what is being done? I think I think of Michael Jackson's face. The thing that ought to come to mind is not what technology was used to do this, but rather what standard was Jackson using when he requested this? Was he ashamed of his race? Was he ashamed of his face? Was he ashamed of his father? What what was going on there? By what standard, if someone for uh, if someone for example were banged up badly in a in a car accident and a plastic surgeon reconstructed their face, that's the same situation as the broken bone. Right? He has an idea of what a normal human face looks like. He has an idea of what this person's face used to look like. He has that knowledge, and then he he is fixing he's restoring we live in a fallen world and in this fallen world things go wrong and when things go wrong we are sometimes called upon to fix it we are frequently called upon to fix it so jumping over to the sex reassignment when someone undergoes surgery to to change the the apparent sex that they are they're not they're not changing anything about the sex they are they're you know the, their chromosomes are remain the same they don't they don't do surgery on every one of your cells right but they you have an optical illusion it is a deceit it is a lie and so when the person says by what standard are you making this change they are not i repeat they're not looking at what nature has revealed to us and then trying to conform to that pattern what they're doing is they're trying to exercise mastery over Nature, and that is their great sin. So uh, there's no, I I don't think there's any navigating this particular problem that we're confronting without recourse to natural law and natural revelation. Uh, There are some in our circles that want to say rest everything on biblical law, but biblical law just tells me that adultery is wrong. It doesn't tell me who my wife is. The Bible tells me that homosexuality is wrong. It doesn't tell me that I'm a guy and that he's a guy too. It doesn't tell me that. I have to get that from natural revelation. Always, we will be guys. Traveling onward in episode 199 of the, uh, of the podcast, we've come to, as you may have guessed, we are now moving on to our hamartiology segment. We are studying the words that detail sinful behavior, uh, every Greek word in the New Testament that talks about sinful behavior. And this time around, it is diok- dioktes. It means persecutor. It means persecutor. It's uh, this is a hapax, meaning that it only ha- there's only one use of it in the New Testament, and that's found in First 1 Timothy 1.13. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor? There it is, and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly, in unbelief. So, this word together with some of the others that. He uses here help us to understand what he meant in Philippians when he said that he was blameless according to the righteousness required by the law. That's Philippians 3:6. Uh, the same word is used to describe Zacharias and Elizabeth, the word for blameless in Luke 1:6. But in their case, they really were blameless. Zacharias and Elizabeth really were faithful covenant keepers. Paul, before his conversion, was nothing of the kind. And so, we have to interpret his comments in Philippians in context, and this passage here, 1 Timothy 1, helps us with that context. He meant that with regard to technical externals, he was blameless. But if you want an accurate report on what he was really like, he gives it to us here. He was a blasphemer, he says, and a persecutor, and injurious, meaning that he was an insolent man. So, Paul Paul describes himself as arrogant, insolent, proud, Conceited, stuck up—he was not blameless according to the law. He was not blameless according to the law. He was not in the same category as Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were blameless in one sense. Paul was blameless in another technical sense. Incidentally, this also—this kind of thing—is also why we shouldn't allow any scholarly funny business about the authorship of the pastoral epistles. A lot rides on it. So. This statement, First Timothy, is a genuine autobiographical statement by Paul about what he was really like, and we should put put it alongside his testimony of his conversion, his various testimonies of his conversion in Acts, and we should um, and his description of himself elsewhere in the earlier epistles. The fact that Paul was a persecutor tells us what kind of unregenerate man he was. He had a zeal for God. But without knowledge. When he persecuted God's people, he thought to himself that he was doing God's work. He actually thought that, actually believed that. Taking all these things together, this means that a man can only be zealous for God and unregenerate if he is distorting who God is in his mind. If he understands who God is in his mind, then the unregenerate mind can do nothing but recoil. So if someone does not know God, but loves God. That means they're loving an idol in their mind that they call God. If they uh, know who God is, if they know His character and attributes, then they they turn away, they run away, they recoil from Him. So, continuing on with the podcast, episode one ninety nine. This is our book review section. I uh, I want this time I want to review a book that was really satisfying in a lot of different ways. The book was called The Judgment of the Nephilim by a gent named Ryan Pitterson, not Patterson, uh, Ryan Pitterson. And what he does, uh, the, basically what the book is about is um, unpacking everything that the Bible teaches about the um, sons of God in Genesis 6 coming down and marrying the daughters of men, mar- marrying human women. And the Nephilim, uh, being the resultant gigantic offspring, so you might say, well, that's just isn't that just a quirky little verse in Genesis six, and then people uh, have different opinions about it, and that's all that's said. No, it's actually quite an important. It's actually quite an important episode. Now, the two the two main schools of thought are that the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, there are celestial beings who marry human women, celestial beings who abandon their proper estate, who abandon their appropriate habitation and have sexual intercourse, marry human women, and have uh, titans or Nephilim as offspring. And the other alternative, the, the thing that's commonly accepted in, in contemporary evangelical circles is that the sons of God are to be understood as the descendants of Seth, and this apostasy was them intermarrying with the daughters of Cain. So, it was an apostasy of the sons of Seth backsliding into marriage with unbelievers. Well, there, there are different problems with this. One is, everywhere everywhere in the Bible, everywhere else in the Bible, where the phrase bene Elohim is used. It's all. It always refers to celestial beings. It is not a term that is used for the godly, for godly humans. That's one thing. Secondly, it doesn't explain why all the masculinity would be on one side of the intermarriage and all the femininity on the other. Why all the masculinity from the sons of God and why all the femininity, femininity from descendants of Cain? Wouldn't you expect some Canaanite, des- uh, some descendants of Cain to take daughters from Seth and and vice versa. Wouldn't an intermarriage? Wouldn't a jumbling go both ways? Why would that? And then third, why would a backsliding, a covenantal backsliding, result in Nephilim? Why? Uh, why would it result in giants? Now, what Peterson does, and I I have to say, this is one of the this I don't th- I can't remember the last time I read a book, and this is. Four hundred pages plus, but don't let that scare you. I don't let that put you off, uh, because it really is fascinating. I don't know the last time I've read a book on a topic that was so saturated with extensive quotations from Scripture. Pitterson is a man who really knows his Bible, and he he quotes numerous places: uh, Ezekiel, Second Peter, uh, Jude. Genesis, uh, he he goes through and shows that this uh, this interpretation that I've outlined is not a not a weirdo interpretation, you know, that only a few handful of crazy people believe, but rather it's I think it's one that's simply required by Scripture. It really is a fascinating read. Judgment of the Nephilim by Pitterson. I'll say one thing: um, for many people, many Christians, this. Thesis that sons of God were celestials that married uh, human women is a non-starter because of Jesus answering the Sadducees, telling them that in the resurrection, we are like uh, the angels in heaven and do not marry and are not given in marriage. So the Sadducees had posed what they thought was a stumper question. If this man uh, dies and his brother marries his wife and so on down the line, seven men die and then the wife dies, who is she going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus says that you don't, you don't know the answer to this because you uh, don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And he says that in the resurrection, we are like the angels in heaven. But Jesus does not say that the angels in heaven cannot marry. He says that the, that the angels in heaven do not marry. The angels that did marry were the angels that left their pro- proper habitation. They left the place they ought to have been and uh, came down and were engaging in an early form of genetic engineering. And that's what, that's what brought the flood on. It was not, it was not too much, uh, how should we say it? The flood didn't happen because people were going to nightclubs too much or they were, they were playing poker too extensively. Uh, the flood was brought ab- about about because man was trying to build a superman. He was trying to get access back to immortality, back to the tree of life, uh, without going through Christ. If you enjoyed this week's episode, check out Doug's book, Pomosexuality, Lust Clusters, Sexual Revolt, and the Christian Responses. Check it out at canonpress.com.